Hello and welcome to what is now Season 5 of Pebble in the Pond podcast. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year, ANZMHA hosts several leading mental health conferences which give us the opportunity to connect with incredible industry leaders, lived experience speakers, researchers, academics and frontline workers as they share fascinating stories and projects which are changing the face of mental health within our community. Listen in as we go one-on-one with these inspiring people and dive deep into their work. It is truly a privilege to bring you their stories. Our podcast episodes may contain content which could be triggering for some people. If you need support, please contact Lifeline on 131114 or visit the Get Help page on anzmh.asn.au. Join us for Pebble in the Pond each Tuesday and let's get into Season 5. Twenty years' experience in the community, health, justice and corporate sectors, principally in the areas of sexual, domestic and family violence policy, practice and law reform, Haley Foster is a passionate leader in the family and domestic violence sector. CEO of Full Stop Australia, Haley chats with us today about how her wide scope of experience has solidified her commitment to making systemic changes, her hopes for the future of the sector and the cultural shifts which are taking place. Hallie also discusses her current role with Full Stop and passionately explains what the national plan means for the sector. Hallie Foster, thanks so much for joining me and having a bit of a yarn to me and sharing your story, journey, some insights with our listeners. I appreciate your time. Such a pleasure. Thanks for having us, Sam. Hallie, you've been a, a big supporter of our conference for a, quite a few years now and, and thanks so much for all your help and your dedication. It's great to be able to grab 30 minutes or so to have a chat to you and slow down a little bit because you are busy, you're doing a lot in this space. But if we go back, how did you go from Bachelor of Business, Finance, Economics, to what you're doing today? How did you get on that path? Yeah, well, actually, I grew up as a bit of a child of the women's refuge movement. So I grew up with my mum being the head of the women's refuge movement in New South Wales and very much part of the establishment of the national network of women's emergency services as well. So I was very much embedded in that and I had it all around me. And I remember sort of just all the conversations about essentially bringing down the patriarchy and, you know, what they were going to do and setting up services in the first place. So that was very much my background and you know I'd go along to International Women's Day and be put up on the stage and singing and you know that sort of thing yeah from from the age of eight really so it was not really any surprise that I ended up going into this field but you know there was a time when it was very normal if if your parent you know, was working in a women's refuge and they were a single mother or, you know, somebody who has a lot of caring responsibility, you just bring the kids along. And so we don't do that now, of course, but I spent a lot of time in women's refuges and playing with the other kids. And I remember thinking and just looking at their situations and going, oh my gosh, like, why are people so stuck in these situations? And it was so clear to me that economic insecurity and economic and financial dependence were such a big part of that. And so that's kind of what really spurred me on to study economics and finance and accounting and then to go into the finance industry because I wanted I wanted to do something a bit more seismic. I wanted to shift things. I wanted to kind of create, at the time, the idea was to create some sort of a financial empowerment structure within the women's refuge movement. And But then I went into finance and realised, oh my gosh, I'm not cut out for this uh-huh. because I wanted to operate in an ethical way. I wanted to support people who needed financial advice and support um 
And so it was really hard to meet my targets because I was supposed to be focusing on high net worth clients. So I had to work really hard to get my sales targets. So I just, at that point, I sort of spun off, did consultancy because obviously the finance and the economics was really great for -for not-for-profits to support them. So I worked with a lot of Aboriginal and women's organisations and then I started working when I settled up north having children in the northern rivers of New South Wales. I ended up settling and starting working community and I worked at the women's, at the, sorry, the Northern Rivers Community Legal Centre and decided I want to do more. So I studied law. Bachelor of Law. A Bachelor right. of Law, that's right. Just um, because you had the time and <laughs> you're, but you're really interested in obviously that aspect of the law. Yeah, I just wanted to change things and do something a little bit bigger picture again was just not okay with the status quo. And, you know, when I started practicing and I went into practicing the family law space, I got really frustrated because, you know, I had I remember this particular case and it was involving a, a woman who was in a violent situation, but she was trying to protect her young child and there were serious allegations of child sexual abuse and I just worked day and night trying to put together this this research for this case, the affidavit, and it did what I thought was a really, really good job. And I turned up and the judge at the time didn't even bother to read it. He just took one look at the cover page and said, I already know what's happening here. And he ordered that that child live full time with the with the parent that she was terrified of. And I just thought, I can't, I can't, I can't do this. And so that's when I was like, I'm not going to practice law day in day out I'm, I, I want to change the system and I ended up working at Women's Safety in New South Wales moved to Sydney and did that and within a year I was delivering training to to judges of the family court and could see that we're going to be able to have much more impact doing it on that level and that's not to say that the individual work doesn't have the same impact I am so we are all so indebted to the work on the front line working with individuals and that's how we essentially change culture but I myself I just didn't think I was cut out for it I was like no we need to change this system that's incredible isn't it I guess that do you think back to the exposure you had as a young child sort of really set you on that path that passion towards doing what you're doing now I mean it's sort of hard at that age to know where you want to end up was quite difficult but the fact that you've like I know you did your bachelor of business but I mean it's incredible that you're you know following in the footsteps of of your mum and the great work she was doing going down that path. Yeah well I I guess for me it's not but at the same time I think I did grow up very quickly seeing all of that and being exposed to all of that and you can't unsee that stuff and it just sort of plants a seed for you and, you know, you're just not going to stop until you do whatever you can to, to change it and to kind of address that injustice. And it's across the board, you know. Yeah. I was there for part of like the Koori Network and were the first kind of lesbian kind of group standing yeah. up and speaking out in that space. And so all those intersections came into it and I could see all the layers and all of injustice and yeah, quite frankly, I think that's why I like doing systemic reform and systemic change. And now in the, the work of Full Stop, like really reaching out into other communities and business and corporate and trying to, I guess, expand the conversation and bring more people into that conversation. Because, yeah, ultimately, you know, when you see this stuff, it impacts you and you want to make sure you use those moments, you use every moment in time to have the maximum impact with what you can offer. And so I think that's what drives me. And it's one thing to see it, but it's another thing to go and do something about it, which is quite significant. I mean, to just to go and sign up for a Bachelor of Law, understand it, work on the front line, see the issues and thinking, well, hang on, this is, I'm not going to be able to affect change sitting here and the judge not taking this, the case seriously and, and things have got to change. 
to then take action to again go and and move to Sydney. I mean, that would have been would have been tough, but you obviously knew what you wanted and you wanted to, you know, try and have the best possible chance of making real change in the industry or the sector. Yeah, I didn't really know what I was going to end up doing. I, I just oh. sort of, it's interesting life that way. It just presents the next opportunity and you just make the best call you can at the time, you know. I don't oh. think there's much time or any worth in thinking back and having that, you know, those sliding door moments and going, oh, what what could have been or what could I have done? It's more like you make the best decision you can at the time and then you've really got to back yourself, like, yeah. ultimately. And and so I think, yeah, it wasn't all that purposeful in terms of the next steps that I took, yep. but I just knew at that moment, yeah, that's where I'm going to have the most impact and I just tried to take those decisions each step of the long, along the way. Tell us about the goal trying to end gender-based violence and how you've seen it come over the, the time you've been in the sector? Yeah, look, I think we're finally getting traction in, in mainstream in the community and that's a testament. There's a lot of reasons why that's happened. You know, it's off the back of huge international movements and then we've had survivors speaking out and feeling safer and less ashamed to speak out. I don't think, you know, it was a, it was a perfect storm when Rosie Batty came out and spoke about her experience and that really started the conversation. And again, Hannah Clark and her four children, you know, again, that actually, um, you know, further sparked the conversation. I note that it's it's often, you know, the white middle class, you know, it's not yeah. to take away from those experiences, but they're the ones that have kind of caught the imagination and and the attention of the media and brought that into the mainstream. So organisations like ours are doing everything we can to platform many more diverse voices and experiences. But I do think that there are yeah there are a number of individuals who have who have really brought the conversation forward, but they're, they're doing it on the shoulders and the backs of the movements that have come and the generations before that have come that have really just never given up and agitated for that change. I think we're much more ambitious now. I think that in, yeah, like I said, the community more broadly, sporting clubs, the media, corporate Australia, and sort of stepping up to play their part and finally not really seeing this so much as a private issue that's none of our business but a very public issue that we all need to take accountability for. And that's where we're going to see the rubber hit the road. That's where we're going to see real change. And so I have a real sense of hope that we're going to make those inroads. We're going to have to set some clear targets for ourselves so we can hold ourselves to account on that and we're going to have to invest. But I do think that the community sentiment and the community, like the commitment from community is there now. So there is a real sense of hope, I think, in the sector. I think we have to be mindful, though, that we don't sort of, I think, criticise too harshly the existing sector, those who have been doing this work for decades and say, oh, well, nothing that we've been doing is working and we need to find the next new shiny thing to solve this. Ultimately, we have never, ever properly invested in and supported those frontline services that are in community doing this work. And I think that's where we're, you know, maybe surprised to people, but I think that's where we're going to get the most impact is when we fully recognise and value those local community organisations, whether they be Aboriginal community-controlled organisations, migrant women, you LGBTIQ organisations or specialist domestic family and sexual violence services, they're the ones that actually know how to do this work. If we resource them to do primary prevention, response and recovery, we're going to we're going to really see dramatic change in community. Do you think part of the issue has been around like a culture of accepting this over mm. from one generation to another and being passed on? Do you think that that's part of the real issue and, and we, so we need to see that cultural shift where everyone says, well, hang on, no. It's no more, we're not going to accept this anymore. We have to stand up. 
Do you feel like that's that's been part of the issue? Is that One, culture that we've had? One hundred percent. And I think you know we have to recognise that that we need a whole series of like a multi pronged approach right. to break that you know that cultural and intergenerational cycle because there's no point teaching people you know to try to be respectful. You know we've done this in schools. I've gone into schools and and spoken with Year Ten students about this stuff. We can do that till we're blue in the face. But if they're going to go home and their normal environment is you know that they're subjecting yeah. and they're they're viewing that and absorbing that and watching the people that are their mentors behave in that way it's not going to have that impact so I think I think there's a number of moving parts one of them is a real structural thing and that's about inequality I mean violence and abuse can only take place when there's an inequality of power in a relationship and then it's when that person who has more power abuses that power and that's where we see it so until we actually create a more equal society we're not never going to fully stamp that out I think The other part is, yes, we need to change community attitudes. You know, the fact that, you know, one in five Australians still think that domestic violence is a normal reaction to -to day-to-day stress. For example, you know, we've got a long way to go with with that education piece, absolutely. But I think that the other new exciting part of the national plan that is the, the recovery domain and that we really do need to support people to actually recover from the impacts of violence so that there isn't that passing down of that intergenerational kind of violence. So I think that recovery piece is really important and then swings all the way around to attitudes. When we talk about gender-based violence, there's the obvious side of things with it, but, but there's also subtle things, whether it's finances, whether it's just different roles in the, in the household that can be very subtle, mm. but it can quickly grow to other things and, and kids growing up can see those sorts of things and that's where that then gets embedded in the next generation. Is I mean, is that what we're seeing? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Gender-based violence, domestic, family, sexual violence can manifest in lots of different ways, but really at the centre of that is an abuse of power and using a whole series of behaviours. And it may depend upon what resources are available to you. If you want to try to control somebody else and, you know, and I can think we have to come back to the fact that people are using violence and abuse in their relationships because ultimately it's getting their needs met. They're doing it for a reason. It's working for them to kind of have their needs met or prioritised and that's why they're doing that. So I think ultimately, you know, people will use a whole range of different, you know, means of abusive behaviour to do that. We find in more, like often in more affluent situations where somebody has a lot of financial means, a lot of power, they might use different mechanisms like, you know, monitoring and surveilling someone 24-7 and with a whole lot of technology, for example, or financial abuse and control. Whereas if you're in, you know, in, in situations where there's a lot of socioeconomic disadvantage, there's not a lot of means available to control that other person, it might be that you're more likely to kind of devolve into kind of physical really you know really quite blatant examples of domestic and family violence involving physical and sexual assault so you know I think and that's that's not to say that that's a a one-size-fits-all but it it, it's just that there are many many ways and we saw this with the emergence of technologically facilitated abuse as well in the sense that you know there's more and more means to exert that control then people who want to exert that control in their relationships will just pick up different different means of doing so. If we talk about your experience that you've had in DV services, family law practice, family dispute resolution, did that work on the front line? Did, did it surprise you when you were doing it thinking, well, hang on, I thought this was going to be where I was, you know, this is where I was going to be able to create real change. And then all of a sudden seeing this isn't where this is going to happen. Did that surprise you that, that the issue wasn't really with the front line, that it needed to go higher and, and further? Is that? 
Yeah, I think the issue is all the way through. I think whenever you do this work, like because I've grown up in it, I think there was a lot of assumed knowledge. So I was genuinely shocked when I went in to work in family services and child and family in family law. I just you know, and in men's behavior change as well, I was really surprised at the amount of assumed knowledge that I thought, you know, that I thought other people had and that they were kind of operating from. And that's not to be like really like condescending. It's just that if you, you know, if you've been in it, you can kind of see it a mile away. And there was no way we were going to be able to, I I couldn't change the whole culture of those organizations and those sectors from that angle. And so I think, you know, that was probably part of my attraction to the law as well is because the law has a really strong norm-setting function. You can kind of do it in one fell swoop, right? It's not actually going to change it on its own, but it's a really powerful way of sending a message to the community that, hey, as a society, this we're not going to tolerate this and we're going to actually, you know, take some responsibility as a community and not just place that on the individual. So I think that was part of the attraction around law reform is to try to influence things in, in a more seismic way and have more impact, you know, with the amount of time that we've got. When you look at policy, law reform and your your desire to, to to affect change through that that way. Did you, did you find it was it was it easier? Was it harder than you thought? Was did it take longer than you thought? I mean, it, I couldn't imagine it was it'd be easy. Yeah, none of this stuff's easy, yeah. uh, and it does take a personal toll, you know. Yeah. And and I think that you have to. I mean, what I draw strength from is the the women and the people that you know before me who have done all of that work for so many years for so many decades and for many in their lifetime they're never able to achieve what they set out to achieve so I try to remember that when I'm constantly feel like I'm banging my head up against a brick wall with with a change that I'm wanting to see happen an example of that just as like a just as a microcosm was the reforms the last election in New South Wales and we were trying to get some changes to the way that the the justice system responds to survivors of sexual assault. And, you know, we were asking for really simple things like can can they please have access to a closed court? Can they please give evidence remotely? We have technology now. We could use that. Yeah. Can we please pre-record the evidence so that if something happens on the track, we don't have to put them on the, on the yeah. stand for another five days of cross-examination. So those sorts of things that we called for, and we thought it was a very compelling case, and we had survivors talking about their terrible experiences. We had survivors saying the criminal justice system itself was way more traumatic in the end than the sexual assaults in the first place. And yet we had the government of the day announced instead of, they did some reforms in the domestic violence space, which we're very pleased, and we even pushed them to to end direct cross-examination by perpetrators. But for sexual violence they announced another research project and that's all they did. And and that was just devastating. It was really devastating. And for us now, you know, a large bulk of the work that we do at Full Stop Australia is supporting survivors of sexual assault. And we're just constantly every day supporting tens if not hundreds of people impacted by sexual violence who are going through these systems and it just it's so hard to think we could have made some some basic changes and, and we didn't achieve it. That's That's kind of tough. Is it more complex than you thought? The, the most complex part is not so much the, the development of law and, you know, amending the provisions and inserting provisions here and there. The, the most complex part is the cultural change that's required in those institutions. There's very, very strong yeah. culture, embedded and ingrained culture within the police, within the justice yep. system, the judiciary. And, you know, like, for example, going in and practising law and having when you walk into the courtroom 
and everybody has to bow, <laughs> you know, those sorts of things. Yeah. And the same way of like, you know, within the police, that hierarchy and the way that, you know, power and control really is like that's it's the structures throughout. That's really quite, it's quite challenging to affect change yeah. in culture and have a person-centred trauma-informed approach and to tackle kind of ingrained you know, racist or misogynistic or homophobic kind of, you know, when, yeah, that culture is so strong and so ingrained. So in some senses, I think that's the biggest challenge. And you can get really exciting leadership at the top of those organisations, but it's that kind of next rank down right. that that really hold the culture, that have a lot of influence with the front line. And if you can't affect change with those leaders, it, it does sometimes feel like you're fighting a losing battle. It's going to take decades. I think most people would look at that and think that's, I mean, it's intimidating to want to go and try and, and make a meaningful change in that that's going to last. And, but obviously you took it head on and, you, and you've done some amazing things with that. What are some things looking back that you're probably most proud of? Yeah, I think it's a very generous take of yours, by the way. I mean, I think there's so many people who are doing this and yeah. like one, you know, I think we're all trying to add what we can. Yeah. One of the things I'm most, I think, I think the Lighthouse pilot and the Abbott list in the family court. I've done a huge amount of advocacy there as part of the work that myself and all the network did at Women's Safety in New South Wales. We did a lot of federal advocacy around family law. And so I'm really, really proud that, you know, we're, we're about to announce this kind of expansion of that program right across every single of the 15 major family law registries across the country that will now have a really good common risk assessment framework to pick up the incidences of domestic and family violence and provide a, a streamlined, tailored pathway in family law. I think that's one of the things I'm proud of. Coercive control laws yeah. and reforms, I think, are really big. But the other thing that it, it doesn't, it's, you know, for me, it doesn't sound, you know, it doesn't sound as big, I, I, I imagine, for everybody else. But we did a huge amount of advocacy for $1 billion a year investment in frontline services in communities right across the country. And at the time, we were kind of lambasted for, for coming. Don't just ask government for some money. They don't want to hear that and they won't work with you if you do that. We were like, no, actually. That's the problem. That's right. And if you can't, you know, if you can't be honest about that, if we can't set higher expectations, then we can't hold government to account. They'll end up continuing to, to announce, a, announce a little tiny drop here and a tiny drop there and we yeah. have to thank them for that. But I think we raise the expectations and it's the community organisations. I mean, I've done a lot of work in regional rural and remote settings and it's those, it just breaks your heart that, you know, when, when they don't have enough resources to support people like right there on the front line. So I'm, I'm actually quite proud of... The, the amount of investment that we've been able to encourage governments to make in those local community-based services. Resources, especially in the family domestic violence sector, I mean, they're so scarce and it's so tight. And like you said, there's a lot of well-meaning, great organisations out there trying to do the best they can with the resources they have. What do you, what, I mean, what do you think is is the answer to all this? Do you think a, f a federal approach, like a a united front on the funding side of things to try and help help these grassroots organisations get access to because at the end of the day they're the ones that are out there doing the stuff on the front line doing the day to day and really the ones trying to help people on the ground they're the ones that are going to actually change culture yeah. because you know who do we listen to who influences us it's around what social norms and expectations in our own communities and our own circles right so I think if we're not resourcing those local communities to do more, to, to, to go beyond a crisis response, to actually support people earlier on in, in early intervention, but also to try to do things to 
to prevent it from the first place to change culture, then we're not going to see that. We're not going to see that same traction. I think we've done a lot of things really well, though, and I think we shouldn't be. Yeah, I think we should acknowledge. You know, things like the establishment of ANROS, Australian National Research Organisation for Women's Safety, to really create an evidence base of what's working and what's not so that we can we know where it is to put our resources. Things like our watch that have set up a real framework for addressing the drivers, the core drivers of gender-based violence, I think that's a really big win. Having a 24-7 service, 24 hours a day, seven days a week service for people to be out of contact, I think that's a huge win. And we've done a little bit of workforce development we need to do a lot more, but we've started to do some quite some good workforce development as well. So they're, they're really great kind of, but what I don't want to see is for all those resources to stay just at that national level with those national organisations. We do. If, if we're going to solve this, we're going to have to resource local community organisations because that's where the rubber really hits the road. That's where we actually change families' lives and trajectories to break that cycle, but also we change the norm the social norms and expectations and conditions that actually allow this sort of behaviour to thrive. As far as looking at systems or policy and law around domestic family violence, have we looked internationally and are there other countries that are doing some stuff that's really progressive? There are, you know, and I think we often look to the United States and it's different because they're, like, there's different laws in each of the different states, states of, of okay. the United States, but also, you know, very much for coercive control. We, we were looking to the UK. It was a lot of, I mean, Scotland and Ireland and England. Oh. And so there were a lot of, there's a lot of progress there. You know, I think in a lot of the respect at work space, and we were looking to a lot of the Scandinavian countries as well of those macro policies that really shift that kind of gender inequality picture. Um, there's a lot to be learned from a lot of the Northern European countries as well. So, yeah, we certainly do look internationally and that really helps. And I think that's kind of approach that we have used at Full Stop Australia in, in some of the advocacy work that we do because we, we try to partner with sister services in every state and territory across Australia and help and lend support for submissions they make around law reform in their different states and territories and policy reform. And one of the really powerful things that we can add is that we know what's happening in all the other states and territories and internationally. So we're able to say, hey, we've seen this already in operation in Victoria, for example. You could add these elements to it in WA. So that is actually a really powerful way. And it's the same with international you know, examples. Yeah. If we can see it, you can't kind of see something, be something unless you've seen it. And I think that that's to see things work internationally or in different states and territories really helps compel action. If we look at a holistic approach trying to get, because obviously Full Stop Australia can't do it all, there's other organisations that can't do it by themselves. Do you think we're seeing a more collaborative approach to this in trying to end gender-based violence? I think we are. I think that there's a really tough, it's a really tough environment because it's so underfunded and there are so few resources. There has been a sense of that, you know, everyone is competing for the same dollar. And I think that's why as much as possible, if local communities can be empowered, they know the services people feel safe and comfortable to access. And so they know where they're able to sort of say, hey, let's just come together. This is the, these are the resources we've got in our community. We know this agency is best for this. This agency is best for that. All agencies will be an open door, but we, you know, they can kind of advocate for partners in the sector to be able to be well-resourced. I think when it's at that kind of upper echelon level, and particularly when it kind of matches the political cycle, um, and so that you see announcements in mar marginal electorates and those yeah. sorts of things, that's really tough. But I think there is a universal kind of, I think there's a movement towards a real commitment to have universal access and then integration, service system integration. But we've got a long, we've got a long way to go. Yeah. But 
being able to make sure that no matter where somebody enters this the system and wherever they put their hand up for help that they get an appropriate response and then that they can kind of be linked into services that support their individual needs you know people need choice in this you know people are going to access support in different ways so I think that whole sense of like this is the service that we need to invest in that's problematic we need we need multiple choice and I think that's another bit of the work that Full Stop Australia does actually is around trying to support the unlikely places trying to support those organisations that people might go and might be able to disclose about their experience or feel safe about their experiences such as GPs for example or in the workplace their employer and trying to train them up to be able to know exactly you know how to provide a safe and trauma-informed response to any disclosures and to make sure that people can access specialist supports. You mentioned Full Stop Australia let's talk about Full Stop Australia in a little bit more depth it Established in 1971, about 51 years or so, I think, that that's been around. Yeah. uh, Reading through the history of where it started to where it is now is quite amazing with how far this has come. Tell our listeners a little bit about the service and and what, what you're up to at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we we were the first rape crisis centre in Australia. And so that was a really exciting time was when we first established the Aboriginal Legal Service, Ringa Bayer Aboriginal Women's Legal Service. So a lot of really key agencies were established at that time alongside ours. And we were called New South Wales Rape Crisis. And we've evolved over time pretty much wanting to do whatever we could to change the system. And so We did a lot of public community education and outreach. We were doing a lot of the work even in behaviour change. We were doing stuff that was trying to change laws and systems. And then over time, we've just sort of built built on that that work. We did actually operate 100 Respect for a time and then that that got passed over to Medibank Private. Mm -hmm. But we, you know, and there are more, there's been so many developments. So we now have the national, we've got our watch, the National Primary Prevention Body, and they're doing a lot of the training that we had, you know, we'd been developing similar training for some time, but there's more resources flowing there. So now we've like, we're, we've had to kind of do a bit of like reflection and introspection yeah. and going, well, what is it that we want? Like there's more work than any of us can do. What's the most effective use of our energies? Yeah. And where we've sort of landed on is that we're kind of experts in response, right? A trauma specialist response. So we have 24-7 crisis and trauma recovery services we're not the same as you know 100 respect we actually provide more of a care continuum it's not as high volume as 100 respect but when someone comes through to us we do try to refer to them to local services but we might continue operating you know giving them the the nighttime support overnight support or when they're when their counselors on leave we provide that support and that touch point so we provide a continuation of care from you know, from from crisis point all the way through to trauma recovery. We support people of all ages and all genders and all backgrounds right across the country. Um, We support people through the redress schemes, so people who have been sexually abused as a child in institutional settings. We've got a rainbow helpline as well, specifically for people from the LGBTIQ plus community. We've got a universities line. So we do a lot of that frontline work in the training and education space. We do provide a lot of resources publicly. We partner with a whole range of different agencies in providing that training education and where they often want our our contribution is in the response part, so how to respond in a trauma-informed way. But we we offer a whole range of different, you know, from licensed venues to sporting clubs to the media to corporate. We do a lot there. We also support workforce. So a lot of, you know, self-care planning and supporting the workforce to manage vicarious trauma to provide debriefing. So we do those sorts of services as well. And then, of course, it's the the advocacy piece. And 
part of what we, what we feel is different. And we'll say like we, we, we chat to our counsellors about this, like what makes you want to work here? And it's that we don't want to just provide people with the best possible support that they can get in the current system. We also want to acknowledge that the system needs to change and we want to keep tackling that and addressing the drivers and addressing and changing the systems. And so I think that's kind of the core of who we are and what we do and what makes us different is that we, we're going to, in every single state and territory and federally, we're going to keep pushing for that change as well as delivering that support. And having those frontline services really gives you an opportunity to keep hearing from you know, the people that are in it, that are experiencing it to see what needs to change, what needs to be better, especially when you're national. That's right. And we have a really strong ethos around making sure that people who have experienced abuse are, are the ones that are given the platform and the opportunity to make that change. So I think, you know, one of the exciting things that I've been a part of establishing since I've been here in the last 18 months is the establishment of the National Survivor Advocate Program. And that's really exciting. We've got 250 people or a little bit more growing all the time of survivors of sexual and domestic and family violence right across the country from such diverse backgrounds and ages and genders and geography. And they're able to kind of let us know what they're passionate about and how they want to add their voice. It might be, you know, but we've got Chanel Contrast standing up and we're working with her. And that was really exciting that the Teach Us Consent and the and the education curriculum changes around respectful relationships education. But it might be that people don't want to necessarily speak out in a public way and talk about their experiences. They might want to just meet with a minister or a commissioner and talk about their experience. They might just want to add to law reform submissions. They might want to help with education campaigns or they might actually just want to provide feedback to services about how they can improve their services. So there's a whole range of ways that people may choose to use their voice to to influence change and we really want to make sure that we provide that opportunity as much as possible And, and also to make sure that our services are informed by the people that we're here to work with and alongside. Yeah. Well, it certainly sounds like doing a lot. I see how that you've had to be agile over your time, right? I mean, you're constantly evolving and adapting based on where you see the role that you can play and best use and channel your resources. Is, Is that sort of a good way to see it? Absolutely. And I think, you know, when you ask me about my own experience and it's about like how do we have the maximum impact and I'm like how do I have the maximum impact with the energy that I've got for however long I'm here but the organization is very similar like how can we maximize our impact and work with our partners across the country to to drive as much change with the resources and the expertise that we have so yeah I think it's it's very similar we're all very passionate about maximizing our impact and to do that we're going to have to collaborate really closely with others that are doing their part in different sectors, whether it be in the community sector and services sector, whether it be in the government sector or the corporate sector, you know, I think that's what excites me is working, you know, across different industries and sectors and finding those champions that are going to change culture. I think that's the, the really exciting piece. Well, I can clearly tell you're excited and I think our listeners can too, which is why you're doing such a fantastic job, Hayley. I guess if I can just touch on before we round up the conversation, the, the role of the employer these days and and the opportunity that lies there and the role that they play in, in trying to also help educate, bring awareness to, to help reduce gender-based violence. Tell us about how that's grown over the time that you've been involved 
and where you think that's heading. Yeah, that's actually a really exciting place because if we can change the culture in workplaces, like it's a really high influence setting, right? It really does set norms and expectations. Mm. And so, you know, people who might be experiencing domestic abuse behind closed doors, if they're going to work and seeing a model of respect and that we're not tolerating sexism and misogyny and disrespect and that we're really promoting equality then going home like it it makes a big difference and the same for people who are using violence and abuse and abusing power in their relationships to be able to see that modeling I think is really really powerful for changing culture right across the board so I I don't think we can overstate that impact I think we're turbocharging it at the moment because of the respect at work reforms and the legislation that literally just passed this week we are really turbocharging the reforms in this space that positive obligation now on employers to be able to prevent and respond to sexual harassment is huge. We're getting so many inquiries to do training in organisations and advise them on policy changes. Just today I was on a session, we were with the Property Council and the Champions of Change Network and they were asking us, how do we actually help people to take up domestic violence leave because we've got we've all got this available now we've now passed and it was mm. such an exciting day in parliament I was actually at parliament the day that the, the 10 days paid domestic violence leave came into force yeah it, it's so exciting that we have that but the reality is most people aren't taking it up so to be able to work with employers and industry groups that want to know well, how do we make people feel safe and encouraged to take this up and to kind of help give them some practical tips from from the point of view of survivors who have experienced perhaps a confidentiality breach, perhaps stigma and shame over raising things, yeah. or perhaps the wrong kind of response, to be able to kind of share those practical tips with employers that they're ready, like there's a real willingness and a real sort of sense of wanting to step up to the plate. And so that stuff is really exciting and I think we're going to see a, like a ramping up of that very, very quickly. So it's an exciting place to watch. Yeah, I mean, you want to see it go from just a box ticking exercise to have that option to actually, you know, like you said, making people feel comfortable and really trying to promote the fact that they have that opportunity to seek that help. That's right. It's kind of like a bit of a a kind of a mindset change too. I mean, sometimes we work with employers and they'll say, you know, it might be they're bringing us in to work with them around sexual harassment, discrimination etc. And they'll say to us, we don't really have a problem around sexual harassment here. We literally have not had any, like no one has come forward and complained for like the past two years. And we always love that opportunity to be able to say, well, you know what? We know that one in three Australians have experienced sexual harassment in the workplace in the last five years. It's right across the industry. A positive measure is if you have a lot of people coming forward and feeling safe to come forward, whether it be formal or informal, whether that person actually wants the employer to respond in any way, shape or form but that people feel safe to actually raise it. That's really the first step. So I think that's a really big part of the cultural change is going, we want to see more and more people feeling that they can step up to the play and and actually be safe to disclose what's happening to them because ultimately if people can't come forward, if they don't feel safe to come forward, then it's going to stay silent, it's going to stay under wraps and we, if we, do, we can't see it, we can't address it. And there's also an educational piece to, to the corporates or to the employers to know or, you know, what's available to them as well because that's a big piece for them as well so that they feel comfortable having those conversations and what they can do about it if someone does approach. And I think a lot of that is in the leadership. So if you yeah. see, if you go into a workplace and you start somewhere and you see that the top boss is saying, you know, hey, we are a workplace that will support you in your safety. We will not tolerate any gender-based violence. If you're experiencing abuse at home, we want you to come to us mm-hmm. so we can support you. We want you to access the provisions and the flexibility and the leave that we offer. If, if people have that regularly communicated to them at that most senior level, that they have it reinforced, that it will be confidential, that, that you will be supported, those sorts 
sorts of things make a huge difference in terms of changing the culture. And also just the having policies in place that and expectations in the organisation that you are going to get a trauma-informed response if you say something. You will not be victim-blamed. You will not be interrogated. You won't lose control of, of how we support you. Those things are going to really change culture and it's exciting to see it happen in some of the organisations that we work with. What else are you excited about in the future? Anything else that you missed out? Look, I am excited about this new national plan. I'm excited that, you know, what we're hearing from the minister is some really strong commitment. So that does excite me. I think we do need to, I do want to make sure that we see the funding flow through to the community. So I'm a bit kind of on tender hooks about that. But I think once we start seeing that happen, we're really going to see quite substantial generational change. And so, yeah, that's probably the main thing that excites me. Hayley, if people want to get in touch with you, I know you're very busy, but how could they get in touch with you or the company? Yeah, so it's just fullstop.org.au. There's a lot of ways. There's, there's like a tab on there that says, you know, get involved. And so there are heaps of ways, like whether you're a survivor and you want to, you know, play your part and have your say, whether you are somebody who wants to sign up your organization for training and, you know, or whether you want to access support and guidance, whether you're, you might be somebody who's experienced violence and abuse and you want to talk to somebody about, you know, recovering from that but also just managing the trauma impacts you might be a family member or a friend or a colleague a community member that just wants support you know know how how can you support your loved ones and the people you care about so you can all of that is in the kind of get involved page obviously we're always looking for people to get involved and have their own events around education awareness and fundraising for counseling and things like that but yeah please just like fullstop.org.au and it's pretty easy to contact me from the website as well Hayley, it's been incredible, probably gone over time, but I mean, just, you know, virtually had to hold on to your seat during this conversation. I know that you want to say you're inspiring, not so much just on what you've done, but I mean more about how you go about things. Having had the chance to work with you for the last couple of years, certainly with our domestic violence conference, you're someone, it's, it's the way you go about things. You get things done. Whenever something's required, you're always there putting your hand up, trying to do things. And I can see how you certainly have achieved a lot in your professional life and no doubt plenty more to come. But thanks for your time and thanks for your contribution to the conference over the years. We appreciate it and we'll miss you. Thanks so much. And look, I have to say this conference, there's something really special about it and there's something really special about the Australian, Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association and the work that you do in this space, bringing communities, bringing the sector and researchers and policymakers, everybody together to actually share that knowledge and best practice and um, and the wisdom, but also around coming together and spending some time to just reflect and that self-care space. I've been talking to a lot of delegates about this conference and so many of them have said it's the one conference that they feel absolutely safe to the, raise the tough questions. Yeah. They feel like it's really pushing boundaries and and making real change and, and it's been an absolute pleasure and a privilege to be part of it and I can't wait to see what comes next. Well, thanks for your contribution and thanks for your service. Cheers. Thanks, Sam. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to share with your friends and colleagues. And if you know someone working in mental health that you'd like to see featured on the podcast, please email any suggestions to us at membership at anzmh.asn.au. You can also stay up to date on our socials at anzmha on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to sharing our next episode with you next week.